Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. But this morning, as I said, we're concluding our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope, I pray, it's been half the blessing to you that it's been to me over these last 12 weeks. Uh, I, I told you on the front end, Ecclesiastes is already my favorite book of the Bible, only more so now having preached through it. Uh, and whether it's your favorite or not, I pray that um, it has instilled in you a newfound appreciation, not only for this wonderful little book, but uh, for life itself and for the God who gives that life, and most of all, for his son Jesus and the eternal life that we have beyond our lives here under the sun that was purchased for us by him, by Jesus. And that is what Solomon has really been seeking after for 11 and a half chapters now. It's for hope. Solomon's been on this quest for, for meaning, for purpose. You may recall week three of our study together when I read a few excerpts from Rick Warren's book and I, I threatened to set it on fire as a visual graphic illustration for you, performance art of uh, Solomon's driving point all through Ecclesiastes, that he can't seem to find any definitive lasting purpose to life under the sun. He's tried looking everywhere and so uh, we should begin this morning just a quick recap of his quest for meaning. Remember back, all the way back in chapter 1, he said, I tried finding meaning in work, but none of it seemed to make any real difference. The earth is still basically the same for all of our efforts. I tried finding meaning in creation, but even nature itself just repeats itself. No real goal, no purpose. I tried knowledge, but there's always more to know. It's never enough. I tried progress, but there's nothing new under the sun. I tried to make a name for myself, but I fear I've already been forgotten. I, so I, I tried wisdom. Wisdom, the allegedly greatest of all pursuits. But he said, if wisdom is just the ability to navigate life well under the sun, then the wiser I became, the more I truly understood just how broken and sinful our world is, the more stressed and sorrowful I actually became. And that was all just the first chapter. And Solomon would go on to try pleasure in chapter 2, discovered its joys are short-lived. He tried wisdom again in chapter 2, realized the wise end up just like the fool, dead. He tried work again. He recognized you can't take that with you either. He longed for eternity in chapter 3, only to discover he couldn't grasp it. He longed for justice, but found nothing but oppression. He longed for an afterlife, but found uncertainty. And so in chapter 4, he tried envy, sloth, workaholism, isolationism, stubbornness, found them all to be folly. Chapter 5, he tried religion and politics, found them to be lacking, empty. Same went for money in chapter 6, didn't satisfy him. So by chapter 7, Solomon resigned himself to simply living the best life he could these few days of his vain life here under the sun by pursuing wisdom. And yet, for all his efforts, wisdom, he said, was far from me. Who can find it out? Uh, moreover, he kept getting distracted off of the path of wisdom by his own sinfulness. So in chapter 8, he lamented that no matter how wise he became, he still couldn't make sense of God's ways. 
which are not only incomprehensible to us, but are sovereign over us. He said, you can be the wisest man in the world, and Solomon was. He said, ultimately, God is still in charge. We answer to him. And least comprehensible of all of God's ways, chapter 9, is death. Death is incomprehensible. It's inescapable. God allows death to come for us all. The fool and the wise, the atheist and the believer, death is evil, it's indiscriminate, and it's inevitable. So Solomon resigned himself once again, chapters 9 through 11, to just enjoy the little bit of time that we do get here because a living dog is better than a dead lion. You never know when your time will be up. He said, make peace with your lack of control. Remember the serenity, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. It was chapter 11. But last week, in Solomon's conclusion to his sermon and his quest for meaning, he concluded, even if God grants you that peace, that courage, that wisdom, you're still going to get old and die. So enjoy life while you're young, because you're going to get old, you're going to get stuck with boring adult responsibilities and problems, vexations of the heart, And then you're going to get even older and you're going to get left with the displeasures of an achy, painful body in the process of dying and returning to the dust from which it came. And then you're going to get even older and you're finally going to kick the bucket. So Solomon ended his sermon in chapter 12, right where he began it in chapter 1. He said, vanity of vanities, hevel of hevels, all is hevel. It's futile, it's vain, it's mere breath, it's pointless. Work and wealth, pleasure and pain, wisdom and folly, youth and old age, it's all going up in smoke. And that's where Solomon left us. It's his final word. But this morning, at the very end, the last six verses of Ecclesiastes, we discover that Solomon actually doesn't get the final word in this book. We have heard Solomon's voice for 215 verses straight now, After, you might remember, the author opened in chapter 1, verse 1, this anonymous author, and here at the very end, that same author, narrator, re-enters the picture to get the final word. And ironically, his closing message for us is all about purpose. Solomon has been on this 11-chapter-long quest. It's really a lifelong quest because Ecclesiastes is his testimony, but it's a quest for purpose, meaning, and yet we have had to wait until the last six verses here and the narrator's reappearance to finally learn the purpose of this entire book. Why did Solomon preach it? Or better yet, why did the author bother to compile these, let's be honest, really sorrowful, dark sermons of Solomon and write it all down for us. There was no preface. There was no introduction to Ecclesiastes. I usually open my sermons, unlike Solomon, with a joke, you know, something lighthearted, compelling story maybe to to draw you in to the main idea of the text, tee it up for you, tell you why you should bother listening this morning, what's it all about, why is it so important. Solomon didn't do any of that. And so, The narrator of Ecclesiastes makes us wait until these last six verses to finally answer for us, just in case you're still not sure what the whole point of all these depressing sermons have been about, 
for 12 chapters, let me clear it up for you here at the end. And it's actually four things. Four purposes that Solomon has had in preaching to us this whole time. Four takeaways that the narrator wants to leave us with as we end Ecclesiastes and we return to our lives here under the sun. And so with that introduction, I would invite you to stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. God, that you have not left us in the dark about how you would have us live. And so, Father, I pray that you would inspire our hearing of your word, our reception of your word, our internalization and application of your word this morning, just as you inspired its writing so many millennia ago. God, would you use your word this morning to make us fear you in the best way possible, to be obedient to your commands. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, with these final six verses, as I said, the author clarifies for us uh, Solomon's purpose in preaching for 12 chapters, four reasons he's been preaching. Number one, to make us wise. <clears throat> he wants to make us wise. It is good to be wise. The author informs us here that besides being wise himself, remember Solomon was the wisest man on earth in his day, but in addition to that, the preacher, Solomon, we know Solomon is the preacher, even though he's not named here. Chapter 1, verse 1 identified him as, and these as the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Solomon was the only king, son of David. He fits the description. So besides being wise, he also taught the people knowledge. This is why he's been preaching, to teach us knowledge, wisdom, to pass it on, to help us learn from his mistakes. Ecclesiastes is a record of all the dead-end paths that Solomon has tried and explored and found wanting for meaning. And now he's saying to us, don't waste your time, don't waste your life 
trying, valuable years of your life trying to find hope and meaning and fulfillment and pleasure and money and influence and reputation, let me save you the time and teach you how to live. This is what wisdom is. Wisdom is competency at well living. And so that is what Solomon wants to do here for us, to make us wise. How does he do it? Verse 9, he tells us, by weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. If you've been with us, you'll recognize Ecclesiastes has been chock full of proverbs, these short didactic sayings, hundreds of them in this book, not to mention the whole first 29 chapters of the book of Proverbs that is attributed to Solomon. Plus, apparently, a whole bunch more than that that didn't even make the cut into the Bible because according to 1 Kings 4.32, all total, Solomon authored 3,000 Proverbs. Why? To make us wise. Because it is good to be wise. Solomon has reiterated that all through this book. The goodness of wisdom. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Chapter 2. Then in chapter 4, better to be poor and wise than powerful and foolish. Chapter 7, wisdom is good with an inheritance. Wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom gives strength to the wise men. Chapter 8, who is like the wise? A man's wisdom makes his face to shine. Chapter 9, wisdom is better than might, better than weapons of war. Chapter 10, a wise man's heart guides him. Wise man's mouth wins him favor. Wisdom helps one to succeed. It's good. How so? How does wisdom work to help us succeed? Well, he answers that question if we skip down to to verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. Philip Ryken explains a goad is one of the tools of a shepherd's trade. It's a sharp stick that spurs a stubborn beast to keep on moving. It is designed to inflict just enough pain to get the animal's full cooperation So he says, think of Ecclesiastes like God's cattle prod for your soul. Any of you felt poked and prodded over the last 12 weeks on Sunday mornings? Maybe your husband said something to you Saturday morning, kind of upsets you, a little insensitive, but you kind of overreacted and you let it fester all day long until you came to church that next day, Sunday morning. We read together in chapter 7, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. That's God's cattle prod, shocking you off of the path of anger. Be slow to anger. Get back on the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Or maybe you were getting ready to postpone that vacation that you had planned. Because the timing just wasn't seeming to work out between your work schedule, the kids' school schedules. Then you came on Sunday and you heard in chapter 9, eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy life. The few short days God gives you here is death is right around the corner and there are no vacations in Sheol. That's God shepherding you, helping you see the way he wants you to go. Or you've been meaning to get your roof fixed for months and then chapter 10... Said through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. You're a little more motivated that afternoon on on your house projects. I had one brother tell me after last week's message in chapter 11, where Solomon had told us, remove vexations and pains from our lives. Quit making life harder on yourself than it needs to be. This brother told me that God convicted him about his spending, that he needed to tighten up his wallet, address his debt issues. 
that God had zapped him off the path of pain and vexation back onto the path of financial responsibility in life. Friends, this is how God works. This is how he uses his word to shepherd us lovingly, sometimes painfully, just enough pain to shepherd us lovingly. And the Proverbs in particular, these pithy little power-packed maxims in books like Ecclesiastes, they are goads. Solomon continues in verse 11, they're like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Some of you, some of you, if you're honest, you have been trying to hold your life together with scotch tape. I'm not very handy. I just give me the cheapest, easiest, quickest fix. Sometimes that backfires, right? You know, I think of back to my college days, trying scotch tape up, you know, my, my posters in my dorm room. Posters are a little too heavy for scotch tape, so inevitably I end up trying to re-stick them up five, six times, use the whole roll of tape before I would finally wise up and go and buy a box of nails in the store. Some of you have been trying to hold your marriage together with scotch tape. You've been trying to hold your career together with scotch tape. Trying to hold your faith, your life together with scotch tape. And God has got a box full of heavy-duty, immovable nails waiting for you. And you will turn to him for the wisdom. The world has got plenty of tape to offer you. Just follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. Listen to your inner self. That's tape. Listen to God. Do what makes him happy. What glorifies him. Love the Lord with all your heart. These are nails firmly fixed. Those are nails you can hang your life on. That is true wisdom. And in verse 11, Solomon assures us how we can know that these nails are trustworthy, that these goads, these sayings are trustworthy. It's because they are given by one shepherd. Did you know that that's what the Bible is, friends? That the Bible is not primarily a book of rules for you to follow. It's not primarily a historical account to inform us about important events from the past. It's not even primarily a book of Proverbs to make you wise, that more than anything else, the Bible is God's word. It is the living and active voice of the one true shepherd, beckoning us, his sheep, back to the fold. Because the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. The Bible says, one of the few you know, psalms that even non-Christians know, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? Psalm 23. And yet, for most of us, we don't live like the Lord is our shepherd most of the time. He wants to lead me beside still waters. He wants to restore my soul. He wants to, to lead me in paths of righteousness and life for his name's sake. But as sinners, we have all wandered, strayed off that path. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And how does God call us back? Back to the fold, back to himself, back to our good shepherd. It is by his word, his voice. 2 Peter 1.21, 
assures us that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. They were carried by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. This is not human opinion on Sunday mornings, what you're getting. 2 Timothy 3 reminds us that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's his word. And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is what God wants to do for you through his word, to guide you, to shepherd you. But more than anything else, speaking of making us wise, we can back up one verse earlier in 2 Timothy 3 and read verse 15. The even greater reason, the greatest reason of all that God gives us his word, his scriptures, more than teaching, reproving, correcting, training in righteousness, most important reason God gives us his word, 2 Timothy 3.15, the sacred writings are able to make you wise, but wise in what way? Wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. God is speaking to you through his word this morning because he wants to save you. He wants to make you a sheep, adopt you into his flock through your faith in his son, Jesus. Do you want to be truly wise, eternally wise? You need to come to saving faith in Jesus. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for you, the sheep, so that we might have life to the fullest, eternal life with him in paradise. Listen to him, calling you home this morning. Here's what he says. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish because no one can snatch them out of my hand. This is his promise, the promise of your good shepherd for you this morning, his offer if you will receive it. Friends, do not settle for sinking sand and scotch tape. This morning you need to build your life on the rock, on the firmly fixed nail, the one who bore the nails the lamb who was slain on the cross for you. In verse 12, the author warns us, beware of anything beyond this. Beware of anything beyond these. Be careful trusting in any wisdom that is extra biblical outside the Bible. Now, does that mean we reject it outright? Does that mean that Christians should be fundamentally distrustful of science? and psychology, and modern medicine, and politics, and every other arena of life that claims to have any answers for all of the problems we see around us in the world today. That if we can't find the answer directly, quote it chapter and verse in the Bible, then we have to reject it. I don't think that's what he means. You know, when the narrator says in verse 12, of of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Every student's favorite verse, especially around exam time, as the semester comes to the end, right? Much study is a weariness. Amen from the students. And yet, is Solomon's point then that we should never study? That we should never read any book but the Bible? I can tell you, and God willing, we will sometime in the next two weeks be the ones in that delivery room And I'm grateful that Dr. Weinstein did not confine himself to just studying the Bible. I'm taking my car in to the shop for a tune-up tomorrow. I'm grateful my mechanic didn't confine himself to just studying the Bible. 
I don't think that's what the narrator means here. He doesn't say exclude everything else. He just says beware. He says be wary, be careful. Not of, not of all wisdom that's outside the Bible that you can't find in between the cover, but of any wisdom that's beyond it, literally that's out of bounds, that's incompatible with the Bible's wisdom, or that claims superiority to the Bible. You know, you've got the Bible, but you need this too. This goes beyond the Bible. You need this, this revelation too. He says be wary of that. As Philip Ryken puts it, be careful trying to go farther than the word of God. Are you seeking spiritual truth? Don't be like the person the Apostle Paul warned about, 2 Timothy 3.7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Instead, be content with what the Bible says. Do not accept anything less and do not demand anything more. Is the Bible enough for you? Revelation 22, don't add to it or take away from it. God's word is sufficient. If the Bible is truly the word of God, the voice of the one true shepherd, then every other book out there, every other voice out there, every other counselor under shepherd in your life, myself included, is only as good to you as they are able to help you understand, internalize, apply this wisdom, this word, God's word. Don't go beyond it. Okay, got all that? That's all point one. That's purpose, purpose one for Solomon's speaking here, his, his words, to make us wise. Solomon's second purpose for this sermon, believe it or not, has been to make us joyful. It is good that we would be joyful. Solomon has been preaching. The author has been compiling sermons and passing them on to make us joyful. He tells us in verse 10 that in addition to seeking out words of wisdom to teach his congregation, the preacher also sought to find words of hephets, delight, pleasure. It's the same word that Solomon used uh, up in verse 1 of chapter 12 here. When he urged us to remember your creator in the days of your youth before you get old and can no longer find any hephets, any pleasure in life. In other words, Solomon is warning us because he wants to make us happy. He, he doesn't want us to end up as that grumpy, crotchety, old person in our 80s or 90s. We all know one, your grandmother, your granddad, who, who, who can't find any joy anymore in life at all, anywhere. Not a single reason to get out of bed in the morning. My back hurts. When did gas get so expensive? I can't drive anyway. What about these kids these days? According to Solomon, remembering our creator has the power to turn Grumbling into gratitude. This is, this is a great Thanksgiving week message for you this morning. Reminder, don't be that old person who complains about your aches and your pains all the time. Be the one who marvels that anything in your body still works anymore. Put it in perspective. Don't be the one who gripes about how milk used to be. It cost a nickel in my day. Because remember, Solomon instructed us back in chapter 7 Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Don't waste the few remaining days that you have left on this earth complaining about how much better they used to be. Again, put it in perspective. Keep in mind, you probably suffer from, from lactose malabsorption anyway in your old age. You can't drink, drink milk anymore anyway. At least now you can buy almond milk, soy milk, rice milk, hemp milk. There's all kinds of milks today that you didn't have 60 years ago. So quit complaining. 
Don't grumble. Be grateful. Because gratitude is the key to happiness. Gratitude is actually the number one predictor of happiness, of how much someone enjoys life, is how grateful they are. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, I I can accept all that, but Ecclesiastes? You're telling me that Solomon has had four purposes in preaching this sermon, and one of them allegedly was to make me happy? Have you been reading the same book I've been reading for 12 chapters now? This does not sound too chipper to me. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's where he started in chapter 1. That's where he ends in chapter 12. And it didn't get a whole lot happier in between there. You might recall, all things are full of weariness. I can't even bear to talk about it, he says. It's an unhappy business that God has given us to be busy with down here under the sun. The wiser I became, the more stressful and sorrowful I become. So I gave my heart up to despair, chapter 2, because all man's days are full of sorrow. Man has no advantage over the beasts, chapter 3, because we all die just like animals. And the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive, chapter 4. And so the best we can hope for, chapter 5, is to stay happy just long enough that we, we don't remember our days here. It's like distract yourself, chapter 5. These few days of our vain lives, which we pass like a shadow, chapter 6. Because the day of death is better than the day of birth, chapter 7. And it's better to mourn than to feast. Despite the fact, chapter 9, that there is no hope in death. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. We all fall into death's trap in an evil time. And once you're dead, chapter 11, the days of darkness will be many. They will outnumber and outweigh the days of your life. And just remember after that... God brings all your deeds into judgment. Now you say, that is supposed to make me happy? That summary of a clear, that's supposed to make me joyful. That sounds like we need to call the suicide hotline and put this guy on watch. He is in need of some serious therapy. Don't you just want to give Solomon a hug? Would it surprise you then to discover that the words joy and joy and joyful are used more frequently per chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes than any other book of the Bible. Philippians is tied. But the context with that is never, there is no joy in life. It's not, he doesn't use the words joy and joy to to tell us don't bother trying to enjoy life. No. Thirteen times in this short book, Solomon exhorts us, be joyful and do good as long as you live. Keep joy in your hearts, chapter 5. I commend joy, chapter 8. Eat, drink, and be joyful. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Enjoy life with the wife who you love. Now, how is that possible, you say? How How can arguably the most depressing book in the Bible simultaneously call us to joy more than any other? I think find the answer right, right in the middle in chapter 7, verse 3, where Solomon claimed that sorrow is better than laughter because by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now think about that. By sadness of face, by sorrow, your heart is paradoxically made glad. See, even the best life possible here on earth is relatively short, it is filled with suffering, and it inevitably ends in death. This is what we've discovered. 
chapter after chapter throughout Ecclesiastes. And Solomon's point all throughout has been that the sooner we realize that and we come to grips with it, we face the music and we get honest about life and about death, then the sooner we can truly appreciate this life for what it really is. It is a gift, a temporary gift, but even more than that, it's a gift that is intended to point us back to the giver. Our lack of satisfaction and fulfillment in everything else here under the sun, the pleasures, the comforts, the money, the power, even the wisdom, if none of, us, none of it can make us truly, deeply, eternally, lastingly happy, then maybe, Solomon says, maybe we're supposed to find our happiness elsewhere, above the sun. And that's been his point for 12 chapters. As C.S. Lewis put it, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Solomon says, you can keep laughing. You can keep forcing, faking the smile, desperately trying to convince yourself and everyone else around you that you're content. You know, that if this life is all there is, if this is really as good as it gets that if you are truly living your best life now, that you can be perfectly happy with that. Or you can be honest about the situation, about life's brevity, about pain's pervasiveness, and about death's inevitability, and allow yourself the freedom to be sorrowful about it, to experience a sense of longing for something more, something better. There's got to be more than life here under the sun. Like Abraham, Hebrews 11 tells us was never content to just live out of his, his tent here in a fallen world, but he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham longed for heaven, for permanence, for the removal of all hevel. And Solomon's purpose in preaching this sermon has been to assure us that it's okay not to be okay with the status quo here under the sun. To long for more because God put that desire in you to point you to him. Remember, chapter three, God has put eternity into man's heart. We were made, you were made for life above the sun with him forever. That's why you experience the longing. And only then, only when you're living your best life now with him in eternity. Will you be truly happy and fulfilled? And paradoxically, only when, you, only when you accept that, that life here will never be what it should be, what you want it to be, what you long for it to be. Only when you accept that can you actually paradoxically find joy in even the temporary pleasures of this life as well because you'll stop looking to them to satisfy you eternally because you'll know they can't. Purpose number three, we'll be quicker on this one, to make us enlightened. It is good that we would be enlightened. Not only did Solomon speak words of knowledge to make us wise and speak words of delight to make us joyful, we read in verse 10b, uprightly he wrote words of truth to make us enlightened. Now, it took me a little while to land on this wording. Did, what does truth do for you? Did, did, did he write this truth to make us informed? 
Did he write this truth to make us educated, to make us discerning, knowledgeable? I think it's more. It goes beyond any of that because we need to consider the kind of truth that Solomon is offering us here in Ecclesiastes. It's not just truth like the sky is blue or it's 32 degrees outside. No, this is truth like life is short and then you die and then you face judgment so you better get right with your creator. It's that kind of truth. Truth to make you enlightened. Literally able to live life in light of the reality of who God is and who you are and therefore what you need. Namely, God is supreme. We are sinful. We need, and praise God, we have a Savior. Jesus is Savior. And faith in him is sufficient to reconcile you to God. God is supreme. We are sinful. Jesus is Savior. Faith is sufficient. That's the gospel. That is the truth. The all important, that's the most important truth you can ever hear in your life. And that's the truth that Solomon wants to impress upon us all through this book. It's the truth that the Apostle Paul said to repeat again earlier, that the truth that is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, truly enlightened. We need truth, difficult truth at times. Truth like there is a real literal heaven, but there's also a real literal hell. And hell is more populated than heaven. Not too relatively long from now, you will literally be in one or the other. And hell is full of folks who thought of themselves as mostly good people. Hell is full of people who tried their hardest to be kind to everyone and to love others. It's full of people like that. Because unless you love God and others perfectly, you are not good enough for heaven. Heaven is a perfect place for perfect people. If you're not perfect, you don't belong. This is tough truth. We don't always want to hear, but we desperately need to hear. And that God, by way of Solomon, is offering us in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's, he's got all the components of the gospel other than Jesus all throughout. God, fear God. God is holy. He told us back in chapter 7 especially, you know, no one's righteous. Couldn't, I, I searched all over. I couldn't find anybody righteous. We're sinful. Solomon had all the gospel except the Savior. But we have it today. We know the truth today. We can know the truth that we are sinful in need of a Savior. And without him, without him, this is Ecclesiastes, okay? That even if you're the richest, wisest man on the planet, because Solomon was, all the wisdom in the world, all the riches in the world, if you lived a 1,000 years before Jesus like he did, or if you lived 2,000 years after him and you still don't know him today, your life is meaningless. It's hevel. It's futile, vain, empty. That you need to listen to the word of truth today. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. If you want to find life and joy and purpose everlasting. Lastly, number four, it is good to be wise, 
and it's good to be joyful, and it's good to be enlightened, but it's best of all to be reverential. I said submissive, and then I changed the words, did a lot of source work this week. I think reverential is even better. Submissive works, but reverential. Reverential means characterized by deep respect, tinged with awe, veneration, to show deference to another, respectful submission. There it is. And this is the most vital point of all this morning, really of all the past 12 weeks. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be the longest point before you settle in and get worried about your lunch reservations. This doesn't need to be the longest. You have listened long now. Now listen hard, okay? Put your pens down, stop taking notes, and listen hard. The end of the matter, all has been heard. I've tried every path for 12 chapters, every other, other, every other way, seeking for life and meaning and purpose. What's his conclusion? Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Solomon has emphasized the fear of God all throughout this book. Chapter 3, he said we fear God for his sovereignty. His purposes will stand. We fear God, chapter 5, for his holiness. God will not leave sin unpunished. Chapter 7 and 8, we fear him for his power. God delivers those who belong to him. So Solomon has told us all along why we ought to fear God, but it's not until the last two verses that the narrator is going to tell us how to fear God. How do we fear God? We fear God by keeping his commandments by obeying him and here's the thing let's just get this out of the way first john 5 3 tells us his commandments aren't burdensome god is not a fun police god wants life to the fullest for you life abundant joy abundant the question is do we trust that he actually knows what the good life looks like more than we do do we trust him? Do we fear him? To fear God, let me try and give you this you know, one-sentence kind of summary definition. To fear God is to live your life as if God exists, as if he's actually in charge, as if the only reason that you exist is because he graciously decided to give you life, because he graciously decides to give you every single moment, moment by moment, the breath in your lungs that you didn't create and you don't deserve, and keep you alive, and that therefore you don't own your life, but rather you are just a steward of your life. And that you will one day stand before him and give an account of how you used the life he gave you on rental. Did you use it for its intended purpose, to glorify him? Or did you use it to glorify you? That's the fear of God, to live your life that way. And friends, living your life that way, living your life, coram deo, as the reformers put it, before the face of God, living all of your life in light of the reality of God's existence and his sovereignty, his goodness, his power, his holiness, and his coming judgment, living your life that way is your whole duty. 
As a matter of fact, Philip Ryken explains, the Bible literally says here, it says this is the whole of man. The word duty is absent in the Hebrew. It may be implied, but Ecclesiastes is making a wider point. To say this is the whole of man is to say this is all there is to man. Your whole life, this, this is all you are. This is only, the only reason you're here. In other words, this is what life is all about. The most important thing for any person is to worship God and obey his commandments. Because you can rest assured, verse 14, that one day, perhaps sooner than you realize, you, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There is a coming judgment. You will stand before the judge one day. Actually, you won't. You will bow. You will kneel. You will fall flat on your face. Because as the psalmist says, if you, O Lord, should count iniquities, and Solomon's already told us he's counting, Ecclesiastes 12, you're going to answer for every deed. If you should count iniquities, who could stand? Who could possibly stand before an almighty, perfectly holy God in our sin? Unless you have a Savior, a Redeemer, a Deliverer who walks into that heavenly courtroom and picks you up off the ground and looks you in the eyes and reassures you that though your sins for your entire life, your sin, every account for every deed, good and bad, all your sins for your entire life, though your sins were many, Praise God, his mercy is more. That he has paid for every single one of them. Is he your savior? Do you have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ this morning? I pray you do. Yes, you need to fear God. Yes, you need to respect and worship him and obey his commands. But when you inevitably fail to obey him, when you fall short of the glory of God, when you fail to revere him as you should, to honor him, do you have the only defense attorney in town who is able to acquit you of all your sins because he paid for them on the cross? Fear God. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. Obey his commands. And then trust in Jesus and his mercy.